welcome to episode 54 of Breakout Culture. I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Ed Fazy, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. We are thrilled to announce that we have a new sponsor for the podcast, and this time it's Coots. You all know Coots, and you all know that Coots is a wealth manager and a private bank with a huge amount of experience dealing with high net worth clients. We were delighted to discover that if you're thinking of moving house, which as we all know is about the most stressful thing you can possibly do, I haven't done it for about 15 years, I'd say, Coots bespoke borrowing solutions could really help. It's very fitting that Coots should sponsor us since Country and Townhouse is all about living a life in balance and feeling you're in the right home can be an important part of that. Now, like so many of our listeners, I'm sure, I'm thinking of moving in a year or so. In fact, I probably have to. And I am finding it an extremely daunting prospect. So it is reassuring to know that Coots has an on-hand team of experts to help whatever you're worrying about. Are you looking to find that balance between country living and city life? How difficult is it to buy with people snapping up homes in the most desirable locations before they even hit the open market? What are the implications and planning restrictions if you build from scratch? If you're helping one of your children onto the property ladder, what are the pitfalls to be aware of? Coots could help give you that advantage so you're in the best possible position to buy. So just visit coots.com to discover more. It's getting to be that time of year when we start talking about Christmas. We might already be thinking about it and even planning it, but for Londoners in particular, it doesn't really feel like Christmas till the lights on the Trafalgar Square Christmas tree are switched on in early December. The 20 metre high spruce has become a national annual fixture since 1947 and we're so used to it now that Christmas in London would simply not be the same without it. You might all know that it's a gift from Norway but what you might not know so much about is the rich history behind it. Well now you will because there's a new book by A.N. Wilson called The King and the Christmas Tree. It's beautifully told and has charming illustrations by Alexis Bruchon so anyone in search of the perfect stocking filler look no further. So, Ian Wilson needs no introduction, and he certainly doesn't need an introduction to me, because I've actually interviewed him before. I interviewed you for the Wantage Literary Festival, and I know you'll remember it, because I... Very happily and very vividly. <laughs> yes. I think, I think you told everyone it was the best interview you'd ever had. But anyway, leaving that aside, you've written wonderful critical biographies, novels, historical works, uh, obviously the Victorians and the Elizabethans. So we're delighted to have you with us. And obviously it's a terrible introduction because I tried to make it all about me. But anyway, it's wonderful to have you with us. Actually. Thank you. No, it's very nice to be here. And it's also thank you, Charlotte, for a, a very, very kind description of this extraordinary story. I didn't really know it. Uh, and then it was talking to a wonderful publisher called Margaret Stead, who works at Bonnier Books, about it and she knew the story and we walked around Trafalgar Square together and thought about the extraordinary heroism both of the King of Norway during the Second World War and of the people of Norway and that's what that tree tells us about. Well it is a very moving story of courage and resistance so can you start by trying to achieve the very very hard task of encapsulating the story as briefly as possible a bit for our listeners? 1940 the waters around Scandinavia, the sea waters, full of mines, which the British have put there. The Norwegians are pretty angry about that. But the reason the British mined uh, the Scandinavian seas was that they were frightened of the Nazis coming round and doing what they did eventually do, which was invade Denmark and Norway. Sweden was uh, neutral. So had Denmark and Norway been. But the thing is, 
and I know this isn't brief, but Norway was the place from which Germany bought iron ore. And iron ore, of course, was going to be made into guns, bombs, aeroplanes, the whole ghastly machinery of the Nazi military. So that was, that was the point of it. And without warning, in 1940, the Germans invaded. The Danes caved in in six hours. King Hartmann, who was the king of Norway, remember Norway had only been an independent country since the beginning of the 20th century. Before then, it was, uh, it, it was a part of Sweden. And he had been chosen by the Norwegian people. They said, do you want to be our king? He'd come from Sweden and, uh, and Denmark, com combination of marriages. Do you want to come and be our king? And will you defend our new fledgling democracy? And he said he would. And he was absolutely loyal to that. And his motto, when, both when he was crowned and all through the war, was all for Norway. He gave his entire life to this. When the war broke out, he, he just lost his wife. He was in deep grief for Queen Maud, who was, who was the sister of our King George V, aunt of the current King of England, George VI. He was nearly 70 years old. And the German minister, or ambassador, we would say, came to him and said, Your Majesty, your new Prime Minister is a Mr. Quisling, uh, and you've now got to accept the fact that the Germans control Norway. The King said, that is not the case. My Prime Minister was elected by the Norwegian people. I'm not having a Prime Minister appointed by the foreign power, the Germans. And he immediately took, this is what was so brilliant about him, he took the gold reserve. As we know, Germany stole the gold from every single country it invaded and never gave it back. He took the Norwegian gold reserve and he put it on a vessel of the Royal, of the Royal Navy. That was a, a brilliant and sensible thing to do because Norway was then financially independent throughout the Second World War. He also directed that the merchant navy, which was by comparison with the size of Norway, was an enormous thing. It fueled the allies. Without the Norwegian merchant navy, we wouldn't have had uh, enough fuel to keep our airplanes going to fight the Battle of Britain, uh, enough uh, fuel to keep our battleships going. And the other thing he did was he took the entire Norwegian government out of Oslo and eventually sent most of them to London, some to Sweden. So the Germans arrived and found Mr. Quisling and his ghastly fascist thugs uh, sitting in Oslo, and that was it. And the king and the crown prince, his son, took off into the snows, the Germans pursuing, trying to kill him or capture him. Hitler was absolutely furious. It took him completely by surprise uh, that this was the king's very brave reaction. They managed to meet up with him once more, the Germans, and offer him terms. He told them to F off, basically, and disappeared again into the snows. This old man, chain-smoking, sometimes skiing, but he found that pretty hard going in the in the deep winter weather, uh, and with his son beside him, the crown prince, and a little band of the surviving Norwegian government. And they then managed to broadcast to the Norwegian people, the fight goes on, Norway remains a democracy, and we are taking the government to London. And it's in London that we will uh, pursue the struggle. It wasn't just talk, they sent commandos. Some of these commando raids were just daring do, some were extremely important and none was more important than when five brave Norwegian commandos uh, landed and destroyed the hydro 
where the Germans were making something called heavy water, which was an essential ingredient to making a nuclear device, a bomb. They would have had, the Nazis would have had the atom bomb if it hadn't been for those five men. And they managed to do that and blow up the entire hydro without killing a single human being. All the time, the king uh, was in touch with his people. He used to go into broadcasting house in, uh, in Portland Place and make these wonderful broadcasts in Norwegian to, to his people. Uh, he was an extremely modest person. He didn't give himself airs, uh, so much so that the receptionist in uh, Broadcasting House once said to him, where did you say you were king of? <laughs> Which always strikes me as sort of summing, summing up what he was like, really. They are very modest Scandinavians. You've come full circle because you wrote a biography of Prince Albert, who, of course, introduced the Christmas tree to Britain. You know, we think of this as some ancient pagan tradition, but it's actually come from the, it's the Germans, really, who invented the, it's, the tradition of yes, the Christmas tree. It, that's so true. And it's, it's another thing which emphasises the absolute heartbreak of the Second World War, apart from its violence and its ghastliness, that it was from all places, Germany, um, mm. domestic, virtuous Lutheran Germany, where the Christmas tree and the, you know, the Christmas markets and their Glühwein and their, I think, slightly disgusting sweet <laughs> fruitcakes and things they like eating, uh, all that kind of innocence was symbolized by the Christmas tree. And yet it was this country where this murderous death cult, Nazism, came to, to be born. What's so good, I think, about King Harkon as about Churchill uh, and those who resisted the idea of appeasing the Nazis. They, they, the, this wasn't an ordinary war. What we were fighting was a death cult. Hitler wanted the whole Goethe Demerung. He wanted the, the, the end of the war to be as dreadful as it was. He was crazy. He, he wanted death and destruction and Europe in flames. And he had to be stopped. There was only one way of doing it, and that was to fight him. I mean, what's, what, what I thought was really, I mean, I love that bit, bit in the book that, that you mentioned when he goes into Broadcasting House and they don't really know who he's, where he's king of. But, but it's clear that you really admire that self-effacement and, and modesty. And I'm interested in, 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 in what makes you think he's such an ideal constitutional monarch. It, you know, it, uh, is modesty an essential part of that, do you think? I do. I think the reason the last 70 years have been a success in Great Britain for constitutional monarchy is that the Queen has that quality. She's modest, she doesn't show off, she, she, there's no cult of personality around her. She learned all that from her grandparents, George V and Queen Mary. There's a wonderful new book, you've plugged my book, so I'll just plug this. There's a wonderful new biography of George V coming out before Christmas by Jane Ridley, who's a friend of mine, but an excellent writer, uh, not just plugging. It's had, it's had rave reviews, hasn't it? It's a terrific book. And um, it brings out, the ordinariness of King George. He was a perfectly ordinary person. If you'd met him and didn't know he was the King of England, you'd have just thought he was a funny old naval officer, country squire. Uh, you might even have thought he was boring and thick, which he was a little bit of both. But the point is, he was modest enough to, to realise he had inherited a constitution, which was parliamentary democracy. These things managed to use the crown and the traditions of having uh, ceremonial uh, and, and royalty, not as the way uh, Louis XIV, one of these sort of tyrants in Catholic Europe would have, would have used them uh, as a way of bossing other people about, but, uh, but of enshrining the wishes and freedoms of their people. 
I mean, you write absolutely beautifully about how the, the, the how carefully the tree is chosen every year and then named after the queen of the forest and also about the ceremonies that surround it when it gets cut down in um, Oslo Marka or the Oslo Forest and also when it's when it's finally erected and lit up in Trafalgar Square no royals are invited to the ceremony because a really good constitutional monarch believes in the right of the people to govern themselves so you've said that that you know the people of Norway and Britain don't feel they need any dictator or autocrat or anyone at those ceremonies so I just I just wondered if the tr- the tree to you is obviously a real symbol of what an ideal democracy looks like. It is, and I think it is for everybody who knows the story, which is why I want to write this story. And you're right to say the illustrations are very good. I love them. But um, the whole point of being a, a constitutional monarch, and that's why modest people and people who don't want to tell you their views or show off or have a cult of personality are good at it, and uh, some of the more show-off starry people are not so good. The whole point of it is that they know when to stand back, and they are protecting Parliament, civic values, mayors, all the rather boring stuff. I don't mean that politicians, troth not, Ed, uh, are boring, but the politics itself should be boring. We don't want interesting politics. We want, we want uh, politics which works and which is based on majority views and committees and that sort of thing. And so it's, it, there's something very moving about to me about the fact that when Christmas comes round, it isn't some grand royal person who who switches on the lights of the Christmas tree. Uh, it's the civic dignitaries. It's the people who've been elected or chosen. I've never actually been to, to the switching on it, but I'm, I'm definitely going to go this year now. I'm going to go, so I'll see you there. Let's all go. Yeah, I let's have, all go. I, I've never been. No. Well, we're all going to go, Andrew. We're going to go and party like it's <laughs> 2021. Well, the book is absolutely beautiful. And, the, and, and tell us a bit about the illustrator, Alexis Bruchon. Well, I think what's so wonderful about the Alexis drawings is that they, they sort of allude to wartime cartoons. They're a little bit like Pont in Punch used to be during the war. They, they evoke the innocence and, in a way, fun of those days. Sometimes I've written gruesome novels and histories of horrible times. It's rather nice to be able to concentrate on this aspect of that terrible war, the Second World War, and realise the central character is somebody, he wasn't a saint, he wasn't even particularly a, a sort of great man until this moment was thrust upon him, and then he did rise to greatness. And he was quite old, wasn't he, Andrew, when, when, when this happened? Yeah. He was, he was ne- well, I call it old because he was my age, the age I am. <laughs> <laughs> he was about 70. And um, I think that's very impressive somehow. Yes, I quite agree. Good. I think it's going to be the 2nd of December. Oh, well done. So, look, we'll, we'll all meet up in, uh, in Trafalgar Square with our mufflers on. That's the rumour. I don't want to mislead. People <laughs> must check, but I think it might be 2nd of December. Anyway, it's wonderful to have had you on, Andrew. Thank you so much. Thank you both for your generosity. And uh, hurrah for Norway. Norway forever. Hurrah for Norway. We love Norway. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Our next guest needs practically no introduction as he's dominated the world of ballet for decades. Matthew Bourne, now Sir Matthew, of course, made his name taking traditional ballets, turning them on their heads and utterly updating them. Most famous, perhaps, and he's so bored of hearing this, for his all-male version of Swan Lake. He's a brilliant choreographer and dancer, winner of a special 2019 Olivia Award, and now a podcaster too, with, pun intended, Born to Dance. We're delighted to have him with us this morning. Hello, Sir Matthew. 
Hi there, Ed. How are you? Very well. <laughs> morning, Matthew. Well, morning, Matthew, morning. we are seriously thrilled to have you. And I know you've been very kind coming a bit earlier than usual as we've been chasing and chasing you for a long time to come on this podcast. Not just because we want to hear all about what you're doing with the Nutcracker this season, but I'm especially interested in The Midnight Bell, your ballet based on the novels of Patrick Hamilton. Now, yeah. for listeners who don't know, Patrick Hamilton is famous for his 1938 and still frequently performed play Gaslight, but he also wrote novels in an incredibly atmospheric way about London during the 1930s and the Blitz. My Patrick Hamilton all-time favourite is the Gorse Trilogy, but you've based your ballet on the, mid, um, the Midnight Bell, more on his better-known work, Hangover Square, and I think 20,000 Streets Under the Sky. So I'm fascinated to know how you came across him and what inspired you about his stories. Um, well, I knew the, the... I suppose, firstly, as you said, I knew the famous plays. The other famous play he wrote was Rope, of course, that was of course. Uh, famously uh, filmed by Hitchcock. And um, so I knew... I was aware of those, so they led me to the books a little. And having a place in Brighton as well, which is where he's from, and a lot of his novels are, are partly set in London, partly set in Brighton. And I just fell in love with these characters, the authenticity of them. A very working-class kind of London that you don't often see written about. Um, or portrayed you know it's normally the Noel Coward sophistication and cocktails and witticisms and things but these because he spent so much time in the pubs with ordinary people the voices of the characters are very authentic and I love that and actually I should tell you your favourite character from the Gorse trilogy mm. uh, Ernest Ralph Gorse is actually in the piece so I've, I've mixed up the uh, novels so I get characters from other novels all meeting up in this pub the midnight bell and i tell sort of six stories over the evening i confess that i'm always in awe of charlotte's uh, great uh, erudition and learning because i'd never heard of patrick hamilton before we decided to do this podcast but uh, presumably his novels are uh, completely uh, out of print uh, no they're not they're all in print now they've 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 there's a, a published called Abacus, I think they're called, who've published, republished them all with new introductions by people like Will Self. And it's interesting that the fans of his work that have come out of the woodwork to, uh, contacted me. Uh, people like Gary Kemp from Spandau Ballet, you know, he's a big fan of Hamilton. And I don't expect everyone to know him, of course, Ed. You know, I... I, I um, but you I, are literally... You're searching for words because you're so stunned. That I've never heard. Of you. <laughs> you're, you're, you are virtually speechless. Well, it's easy. It's easy not to know who he is, but now's your chance to discover. You see. But you'd love him, Ed. You'd absolutely love him. Matthew, are you responsible mm. for him being back in print with celebrity introductions? <laughs> I don't think I am, um, but they're very pleased with this tour that's going on around at the moment because it's a lot of our new adventures. Um, loyal fans are buying the books. You know, they they want to do their research before they see the show. Very, very flattering in a way, but they they are buying the books and, and learning about him. And I, it was interesting to also to read the weekend that um, Edgar Wright's new film, Last Night in Soho, which just opened this weekend, yes. is is also, he's also heavily based or influenced by these books for that film as well. So that was interesting to hear. So it's probably in the zeitgeist at the moment. Right, well, we've all got to go and buy Patrick Hamilton, the Gorse Trilogy, because I'm not going to be able to go to any of these non-lockdown dinner parties anymore and show my face <laughs> unless I can converse. <laughs> but this is not a podcast about Patrick Hamilton. It's about Matthew Bourne. So just talk us through the creative process of taking a novelist you admire and turning his work into 
a ballet and a dance. Well, it, it's quite it's a bizarre process if you think about it because I'm I'm inspired by the words and a writer, and that's what I'm taking out of it. I'm taking Hamilton out of Hamilton in a way because I, I my storytelling is wordless, and so I'm. It's very much coming from the the atmosphere of the novels. It was a hard one because it's a devised piece, so it didn't have a straightforward beginning, middle, end. It had a, it's got a new score by Terry Davis, so there's no real structure there to work with. The structure has to be created. It was a a detailed process, but one that I I really enjoy. I just can't wait to see it now. Don't panic. It has been on for a while, but for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to catch it, the Midnight Bell is still to tour to Warwick. Art Centre, Eden Court in Inverness and Royal Theatre Bath. So kill to buy a ticket. And of course, we'll put all those details on our website. But let's now turn to The Nutcracker, which this yes. year is being staged in partnership with Fortner and Mason. Again, you're going back to the 1930s for visual references, but very different ones this time. This is taking influence from lots of lovely, lavish Hollywood musicals. Can you give our listeners a taste of what they're going to experience? Well, it's interesting. It's 30 years old now, this production, but it's still the most uh, unique one around, I think. It's, it's, we call it not the Nutcracker, we call it Nutcracker! Exclamation mark. So it's sort of, a, it's, it's its own thing. It's got a set of characters that are, don't appear in any other versions of Nutcracker, so we're quite proud of that. But it's, um, as you say, it sort of has a sort of element of Hollywood extravaganza about it. But we decided to, when we created the piece 30 years ago, it was a commission from Opera North. Basically, they came to me because there were so many classical versions around. So they asked someone who they thought would do something different. And at, at that time, I was running a company with six dancers doing sort of quirky little pieces touring around the country. It wasn't something I would have really thought to do, you know, Nutcracker, not with six dancers. Um, so it was a sort of surprise to me to be offered that. And but also, in a way, it sort of changed my life because I don't think I'd be around now if it wasn't for it. Because uh, Swan Lake came sort of two or three years after that, as a direct result of that, in a way. It's set in a Victorian orphanage, and all the adults in the piece play children, mostly, apart from the, the people who run the orphanage. And So it's, it's sort of a... It it's, gives you very much a sense of going from a black-and-white, monotone world into this crazy world of Sweetie Land in the second half. It sort of explodes like a... Almost Wizard of Oz-like, actually, arriving in Oz, I would say. It's... it's, it's Maybe not as deep as some of the pieces I do now, or the Midnight Bell, but it's an <laughs> incredible amount of fun, um, which is kind of what we all need at Christmas, and particularly at the moment. So we're excited to be bringing it back. Nutcracker was your breakthrough piece. And yes. you, every time you see it, you must think, I'm looking at the young Matthew Bourne. <laughs> it is like that, Ed. <laughs> it is. I, I encounter myself again, thinking, what on earth, you know, was I thinking <laughs> at that time? So ballets are just like a piece of classical music in the sense that Matthew mm. Bourne's Nutcracker, Matthew Bourne's Swan Lake will be performed all over the world, won't they? Um, no. <laughs> not really. No. Well, uh, well not, not at the moment. I mean... Um, we do but in tour. Theory. We do tour around. We in theory. In we do theory, tour around. It doesn't have to be performed by Matthew Bourne's company. <laughs> yeah, the pieces are only performed by my company. They're not multiplied. Oh. You know, they ne we never oh. multiply them so that there are many productions of Swan Lake happening. Why is that? Because nobody likes them, or because it's just your no. artistic <laughs> OCD control? 
it's it is that to some extent it's control but it's i always wanted to feel there was a suggestion some years ago that swan lake had several productions going on different places in the world so it became like a show like a west end show that would be happening on broadway and whatever and i just felt it was always should always be the company my company that performs it so it always feels special and it always feels like it's you're getting the real thing and what's the average lifespan of one of your dancers how long how long do people stay in your company oh well they stay in the company many of them for most of their career you know i've got people in the midnight bell who one of them just celebrated 25 years with me you know that they spend their whole many spend their whole careers with me but um yeah until they have to stop you know but luckily i've i have roles for people in their 40s and beyond you know so it's nice that they can keep going when as we saw this weekend when ed watson retired you know well um, i was going to ask about that exactly yeah, i mean it's pretty yeah. phenomenal 25 years i think he did yeah something like that maybe a little bit more he yeah he's the exception actually as a male dancer to be dancing when you're whatever he is 45 or something it is very very unusual at top level it's that awful thing when you're at the height of your powers as an actor you'd have many years ahead of you you know but you have to stop the body just gives gives yeah. out eventually yes. I, I'm, I'm yeah i know i'm the same i'm the same i'm 53 now and i can't do what i could do 20 years ago as a dancer yeah <laughs> <laughs> the, the only time the only when I, I i i do tell this story quite a lot dancing on the dance floor and a, and a woman who'd never met me before didn't know who i was coming up and saying you dance just like a tory mp <laughs> that, that is, is that true. We'll That's have to get hilarious. Matthew Paul to do a, yeah. a Tory MP ballet. That is a terrible point. criticism. It is worst. <laughs> it the most one of the most humiliating moments of my entire life. Have you fact, she, said, she didn't even say she didn't even say MP. She's a Tory MP. <laughs> but, but have you danced since then? Have you dared go on a dance no, floor since then? Oh no! <laughs> oh no! Okay, that'll be our challenge for Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> Get Ed Vasey on the dance floor. That's, that's anyway. It. The Nutcracker opens in Plymouth on the fifteenth of December and arrives in London on the seventeenth of December via Salford, where it will play until thirtieth of January before touring Britain till the end of April. So that's very important to know. Much more important to know than my dancing. And I'm in the fifteenth so of November in Plymouth. <laughs> 17th of December in London, Salford in between, and it's in London until the 30th of January. So plenty of Christmas and New Year opportunities to treat yourself. Thank you so much, Matthew. My pleasure, Ed. Thank you. That's all we've got time for this week. But thank you so much again to Coots, our sponsor. And do visit the website coots.com and discover if its bespoke borrowing solutions could help you achieve that balanced life we're all in search of. Though we do have to remind you that your home may be repossessed if you do not keep up repayments on your mortgage. Credit is subject to status and fees may apply. A huge thank you to all our listeners too and to our fabulous guests, A.N. Wilson and Sir Matthew Bourne. You'll be able to find details of everything we've talked about on our website, which is, as you all know by now, countryandtownhouse.co.uk. And if you add forward slash newsletter, you'll also be able to find the latest newsletters, including Great British Brands' November newsletter about its new Zero Edition, which is Charlotte's new baby, which was launched in time for the Climate Change Conference COP26, which still has a few days to run, of course. But let's hope this podcast provided a momentary distraction from all that and look forward to Christmas a bit if we're lucky enough to still have a planet by then. We'll be back next week with lots more to cheer you up. But for now, goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.